were in trouble too. Turns out a 200 foot long freighter had broken its mooring and come down and smashed into Sabula, Bawan, was dragging her then Laying, you know, then crashed into her side and was dragging her down through the anchorage and the anchor chain, thank God, pulled loose the two snubbing lines. That's Lynn Party sharing one of many tales from her 50 years of sailing the world today on this Ocean Life podcast with me, Josh Peterson. In her early 20s, Lynn Party found her calling to live a sailing life at sea. 50 years later, and over 200,000 miles sailed, Lynn has completed two circumnavigations of the world, enjoyed countless adventures at sea, and sailed some of the heaviest water on the planet, including Cape Horn and the Bass Strait. Throughout, Lynn applied her passion for writing and authored over a dozen books on sailing, along with numerous articles published in magazines and journals. Now today, Lynn shares her story with us and provides an inspiring perspective on simplifying life to pursue our passions in the ocean that helps remind us all that we can design an ocean life that suits each of us. To learn much more about Lynn, see her Facebook page, blog, and books on Amazon.com, all linked here in the show notes. With 2020 kicked off, let's all make a pledge in this new year to do more for the ocean and those around us. I'm personally doubling down on removing all single-use plastic in my household and raising money for underprivileged youth to participate in our local Santa Cruz Junior Lifeguards program. What are you going to do? Thanks for caring about the ocean, and thanks for being here today sharing in the ocean life of Lynn Party. Happy New Year, and enjoy. Lynn, it's New Year's Eve for you. I'm uh, about 19 hours behind you here in California. You are in Victoria, Australia. Is that right? No, we've actually gone over to South Australia. We're at Adelaide. Ah, awesome. Awesome. So you're what? What do you got? Any big New Year's Eve plans to close out 2019 tonight? Well, the fun thing is we're having New Year's Eve with the same people we had New Year's Eve with last year but last year it was in sydney harbor which is the biggest fireworks display i've ever seen yeah and we were surrounded by thirty thousand other boats at anchor and it was the nicest party the attitude the way people made sure they didn't block anyone it was just a fabulous celebration so the same people are going to be with us tonight the ones who oh, are cool how's yeah, that's special to have different but fun times with the same core group of people. And so are you where are you right now? Like as we speak and we'll get into like everything about you and sailing and stuff. So are you on on board? Are you on land? Where are you at? I'm in an Airbnb. So nice. I'm on land about a block from the beach. Very cool. Nice. Nice. And so. Here we go winding down 2019, you know, and you've spent, I mean, we'll get into so many different aspects of your life on the ocean, you know, and just kind of starting like the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, in the last year, you know, you spent quite a bit of time on the water. Um, You're helping a friend and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, sort of help him complete his circumnavigation, something you've done twice. Um, And so you've just recently, and I'm curious about, crossed the Bass Strait, which is, you know, pretty heavy-duty stretch of water um, to get where you guys (laughs) are today. So talk about that, because I remember we were were trying to coordinate a time to podcast, and you guys had to hunker down and kind of tuck in somewhere to to ride out some weather, you know, but you made it. So talk about that passage, if you would. Well, 
Well, the Bass Straits, uh, I've been across it uh, three times now. It can kick up pretty nasty because it's actually in the roaring 40s. It's be, you know, between Australia and New Zealand. But what makes it rougher than a lot of bodies of water is it's actually only about 50 meters, 180 feet deep anywhere. So you've got an, a body of water that's almost 100 miles wide, but it's only you know, very, very shallow. And the winds funnel through between Tasmania and the south of Australia. So you're in the roaring 40s where there's very strong uh, low pressure areas come through and they get squeezed in between these two big masses of land and the winds accelerate and then the currents that run around the bottom of the world also accelerate because they go through this narrow very shallow area and you get the choppiest seas i have ever seen I mean, it's wow. short steep seas and a current that runs up to five knots on days when the wind's blowing you get overfalls i was amazed 40 and 50 miles from land, we were getting 20 foot high overfalls. Oh my goodness. So it doesn't mean that they're super dangerous if you handle them well, but boy, they are not the nicest thing you've ever come across. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for you who's been like in so many different parts of the, so many, all the different oceans I'm guessing and seeing so many different conditions to be so close to land where typically you don't expect to have such heavy duty seas, but as you mentioned, the Bass Strait, it's just mm -hmm. known for that, you know? And so, you guys did what did was it slow going was there any kind of challenges other than just kind of riding it out or was was it kind of just business as usual getting through some rough stuff and then making your making your port well we added one extra thing that made it more difficult and that is we had a date to get to ah. a place called western port which is near melbourne for christmas we promised David, David is my sailing partner. We promised his daughter that we would be there for Christmas. So uh, let's say it put pressure on us. We had uh, three and a half weeks to make the 350 miles. Sounds great, except that the northerly winds held us back. Oh, man. We had, and so we, we worked up the coastline but there's not a lot of good anchorages, so we had to wait in a place called Wineglass Bay, which must be one of the prettiest bays in the whole world. And it's, you know, there's no other boats there most of the time. Uh, and beautiful walking if you want to go walking. But when you're trying to move on, it's, it makes you so impatient. Wow. And so that's part of, that was what made it slightly more difficult, but when we did see an 18 hour break to where we, where fair winds were predicted, we said, okay, we're just going to make a break for it and get up to the island called Flinders Island, which is in the Bass Straits. And we were pretty sure it was only about 112 miles, I think was the exact mileage. We were pretty sure we would have no trouble doing the distance. Uh, but of course you can't know beforehand the winds accelerated instead of the predicted 25 knots of wind we had 40 and it was following sounds fine with me 
until you get into the kind of very short, steep overfalls, especially as you got near the actual entrance of the uh, Straits Banks area. And uh, then another small problem popped up. Uh, I'm only four foot ten. I've sailed for 52, 52 of my 75 years, but I sailed mostly on boats that were built by my husband and I, Larry, and they were built to take advantage, no, to make it easy for someone of my stature. Yeah. Uh, now I'm sailing on a boat that was sailed by a single hander for 12 years, and he happens to be six foot two inches tall. Oh, geez. And the helmsman's seat on this boat, it has a wheel. It's a 40-foot boat. The helmsman's seat is too high for me to sit on. Oh. So when I'm standing in the cockpit, I can't get my little chunky bum where on a seat where I can have a really steady myself out. So I found that I could not steer the boat in this extremely short sea situation where the boat was skewing around quite a bit. You had to be in constant control. You had to brace yourself. And so that meant that I was only good for 10 or 15 minutes on the helm. Oh, and man. so David had to steer the boat for about nine hours in conditions that are not the norm. He did just fine. I made sure he was kept good and warm, as cold as could be. I'm good at getting cups of hot soup out to the helm. But uh, it was very tiring for him. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, dangerous no interesting yes yeah fine no problem with the boat the steering system was wonderful but once again because of the conditions we could not use an autopilot of any sort it right had to have someone to help which is not the norm in cruising but to but since we're telling stories we'll add a little bit more excitement yeah a uh the southerly wind did continue and move to the west as it was supposed to, but the prediction was within the next three to four hours after we made the crossing to Flinders Island, the wind was supposed to come in from the north quite strong. So we wanted to be in someplace safe. Yeah. Unfortunately, the entrance to Lady Baron, which is the anchorage inside of Flinders Island, you have to go across a bar, a breaking bar. Oh, man. And it's only about, uh, I'm trying to think, in, I think in, I've been in meters the last while. It's uh, supposed to have four meters of water over the bar. Unfortunately, the wind was blowing right onto the bar, which means that it was probably breaking. And we were sure. quite concerned about that. And the bar is almost, you know, there's actually three portions of the bar you have to cross. And the lead lights are five miles ahead of you. So you have to, you know, it's not a little tiny entrance. It's a long way out from shore. So uh, we tried, David has a VHF radio on the boat, tried calling the local Coast Guard, because most Australian ports have some kind of Coast Guard volunteer or otherwise. Yeah. But the VHF radio did not pick up anyone. 
And just as I was getting a little concerned and wondering, because there was no no anchorages shown anywhere on the chart, couldn't see any anchorages. My telephone pinged, which meant we had some telephone reception, my cell phone reception. So I got on the cell phone and I looked up the cafe in Flinders because I knew there was a, someone had told me about this hotel restaurant. <laughs> and I telephoned and I said, is there a Coast Guard or anyone? And they said, <laughs> oh, there is a harbor master for the commercial port down the way. He might be the person you want. So I telephoned this very nice sounding gentleman. And he said, you know, the fisheries have dried up here. We don't have any. Our last cray fisherman retired this year. So, and the ships don't come in that passage. And I, I know a yacht came in last week, but I can't give you any information. I can't tell you if it's breaking. Oh, geez. So, hmm. I said, well, that's, I wonder, we might just have to heave to and wait out here and for the night. He says, well, you know, you could check one thing out. I had a friend who used to fish, and he used to talk about going between a couple of rocks in back of Harley's Point, which is about four miles south of the bar. Well, we said, okay, thank you, we'll take a look. And uh, we went into this little hook. You couldn't even tell there was a hook there. It was There's a bit of a point. There's three rocks. The three rocks gave amazingly good protection. It was about as uh, calm as you can have with 40 knots of wind blowing. Oh, nice. And it felt like heaven. And there was <laughs> nothing quite like that feeling of coming. I mean, we could see 10, 12 foot seas going past us only 60 feet astern of us. But oh, my we goodness. Were, where we were, we had about one foot sea. Wow. Just talk about special feeling of sailing out of it into a very pleasant anchorage and uh, just having a good night's sleep before we, while the winds changed and the next day we were able to go in and turned out a good thing we didn't try to go in that first time because when we followed the leads and went exactly on the marks that were recommended, uh, the bar had moved. We saw breakers ahead of us and we slowed right down. Oh man. We had one foot of water under us when we went across the the new bar. Oh man. (laughs) So, uh, but fortunately the wind was, uh, from a completely different direction. There was no big seas. It was just the break of the, water hitting that very shallow spot. Yeah. So that scenario for somebody who's like you mentioned has been sailing for so long, is that like a sixth sense or is it just common sense? You know what I'm saying? That makes you go, you know what, let's just pause for a moment. Let's not push this. We're not really sure. Or is it like a spidey, a Spider-Man sense tingling because you've been through so many situations for, as you mentioned, 50 plus years of sailing. I mean, or is it a little bit of both? Or neither. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of both, but you're, it, <laughs> I got to tell you, since you said I'm allowed to tell stories uh, on this interview, there's a writer, he's dead now, named Tristan Jones, 
who wrote sailing books that are some of them thoroughly outrageous, but he was a storyteller, a Welshman. On the other hand, he did a lot of sailing. And he used to talk about the fact that he felt every sailor who sets out to learn to sail or goes to sea as a little angel sitting on the shoulder. And that little angel is whispering in their ear all the time. And the angel says, check that shackle, watch that point. If you listen to him, the angel stays there for your whole life. Huh. Ignore him once and the angel pouts. Ignore him twice and the angel cries. Ignore him three times and the angel flies. I love that. That's too dangerous. Oh, I totally agree. It's funny, you know, it, in sailing, absolutely. And I can equate that to like surfing or many, or like free diving, other things in the ocean where you have this like, hmm, for some reason you're just pausing and something's sort of not right, you know, and you could just go past it. And lots of times, most of the time, suffer the consequences, you know, or you can listen, you know, so I love that idea, you know, so for you, then, I mean, if you feel that way, too, do you agree with that story of the angel that everybody's got one in the water? I think that it's, it's both things. It's one, accepting that you're learning all the time. And then yeah. to listen to that bit of intuition. Um, I got my very first real sailing adventure was at Catalina Island. And Larry, my husband, was, uh, he wasn't my husband at the time, we were just living together, but he was building a boat and I ended up helping him. And when the boat was launched, we had both, he, we'd gone and taken courses in navigation. Now, Larry was a professional sailor already, very well-known racing sailor in his time, and even yacht skipper on a big charter boat. But he said, look, I want to brush up on my celestial navigation. Let's go to school together. And when we finished the course and the boat was on sea trials, we set sail to go to Catalina one day. And he'd been there many times. I'd been there a couple times. Chose to go to a place called Cherry Cove, which is happening. Mm, yeah. And Larry said, look, you're the navigator. You make every decision. I want you to gain your confidence. So we had no engine. We ended up sailing at night, coming into Cherry because it was, the winds had been fickle. And as we were sailing in, I was taking bearings. I was that was really quite exciting. And here we are coming in at night. Everything, you know, I knew exactly where we were. I was happy as can be with the approaches, but. As we got closer, the idea, of, at first I thought it was just the idea of coming in at night scared me. And I kept not wanting to go in. And Larry says, what's wrong? Don't you trust me? He says, he says do you want me to go and check the navigation for you? Finally, I says, I don't know what it is. I just don't feel comfortable. He says, no big deal. We hmm. just heave to and we stop and wait. And I said, what's heaving too? And I, he says, watch this. And he showed me how we just literally stopped the boat. And he says, I'm going to bed for a couple hours. You wake me and you take watch later. And we lay there very comfortably for the night offshore. And in the morning, they had put an 
oil barrier up across oh, the entrance to Cherry Cove, and it was just a little floating tube the whole width of the cove because there had been wow. an oil spill somewhere nearby. And that taught me a huge lesson. It taught me, number one, it's not important to get your anchor down. If everything's okay, you got to yeah. know how to heave to, you got to be willing to just stop and wait. But it also taught me there was an intuition. I call it intuition. It wasn't comfortable. That is awesome. And that's like a great lesson to like, which I always <laughs> counsel myself on like throughout life and made different reasons, both personally and like in my career and in the ocean is like, listen to your gut, you know, and sometimes it's really easy to, sometimes it's really hard to, and sometimes you just don't know, you just kind of, but the, when you can, especially, and that's a great example. I mean, you guys could have ran up in that thing, maybe punctured the hole of the boat, who knows what, I mean, it wouldn't have been good, you know? And so, that was an early lesson for you early in your yeah. selling career. As you mentioned, Catalina, we're talking Southern California. Is that something that you've taken with you for the you know preceding 50 plus years of just listening to your gut and just kind of carrying that with you throughout? Definitely. Definitely. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm somewhat of an action person. I, I just jump into whatever I want to do. Uh, but with that caution, like I say, the intuition. And Larry got really good. At, you know, he's the key thing about woman's intuition. But I watched him, and there were times when he just chose another route as a sailor. But one of the things that does worry me about modern sailors is they are cutting themselves off from the information that helps build that intuition. Mm, yep. Um, I'm not saying that modern navigation equipment isn't wonderful and helpful. I'm not saying people shouldn't use it, but I do think they should learn how to not use it and make sure they don't let their senses get cut off. Uh, I'm currently sailing on a boat that has basic modern equipment. It's got an engine. I guess that's not modern, but it's got an engine. <laughs> uh, it's got uh, a chart plotter radar. I've come to appreciate radar for different reasons. Uh, and I have to remind myself to get out on deck and look around to, hmm. number one, not trust, to, even though it's highly trustworthy, uh, so far, I've only seen a few places where the chart plotter wasn't quite accurate. Um, it's tending to keep me from getting out and looking around as much as I should. And it's, yeah. uh, it's making me not feel the uh, elements on my skin. And it's amazing that there's been times when just feeling the fact that the uh, wind is drier, the humidity has changed. Yeah. Has let us predict wind changes and squalls coming through. Well, if you're not out there feeling it, you don't know it. You can't, don't learn it. So I worry about people missing that physical sensory growth that helps you have intuition. Yeah, 100%. And that's one part that kind of, I think, initially or can, in some cases, pull people into it is just 
when they learn to sail or learn some new thing in the ocean, it's, it's a way to connect with nature, you know? And, but we also, as you mentioned, are so surrounded by technology in many different ways where the fish are, what the winds are doing, what the, what the storms are doing, the tides, everything else in between, you know, and it's tough, you know, cause it, it is, it makes it easier. It makes it potentially safer many times. Um, but it's hard to, <laughs> in a world of technology to like, and this is one of the really cool things about yours and Larry's, the stories I've read about you of, of, of your time sailing and to the point of, I'd love to hear about it is you didn't have a motor, you know I mean? That's like the most, as you said, basic element of technology on a boat today is just a, a motor that turns on. It's a gas engine or a diesel engine. It goes, you know? Um, and so for you guys, I mean, if you would take us back, you know, you mentioned your early days at Catalina, as we were talking before, you grew up in Southern California, but much inland. Sounds like you had a little exposure to sailing in your youth, but really kind of got hooked in your, in your early twenties. So can you take us through sort of, what you were doing as a kid and just your exposure to sailing. And then that kind of to that aha moment where you're just like, this is the life for me on the water. Well, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and my father uh, had a little 13 foot clinker sailboat. It was his pride and joy. It was called an old town sloop. And if anybody's read the book Tinkerbell by Richard Mannery, uh, that little boat that he sailed across the Atlantic, that 13-footer, was the same as my father had. And wow, for many years, we thought it might have been my father's one. But we used to go for to the lakes in Michigan for two weeks each year. And that's the only time I sailed until I was six years old. We went every year. Then we moved to California, and my father couldn't afford to have a boat. He was recruited by Hughes Aircraft. He was a tool and die maker. Uh, but he used to save up, and I remember maybe three or four times going with the family to Newport Beach, California, where my dad had enough money saved up to rent a sailboat for two hours. And so, like I say, three or four times before I was 14, I went sailing in Newport Beach for two hours. Yeah, cool. Uh, that, it, it, you know, I hated it because I used to get sunburned <laughs> and I wasn't playing with my friends. And my brother and I had to not fight when we were on the boat. And my brother and I loved fighting with each other. <laughs> he was two and a half years older than me. But on the other hand, I think it did influence me in a way in that I remember my father looked like he was the king of the universe when he was sailing that little boat. He was the happiest person you've ever seen when he was holding that tiller. Cool. So I do. So that influenced me in some ways, but yep. uh, I grew up in the north of the San Fernando Valley, which is you know, north of Los Angeles quite a ways. And, uh, near a place called uh, Hanson's Dam, and uh, that had nothing to do with sailing. I learned how to use a canoe there, but wasn't the least bit interested, didn't like it at all. But uh, when I turned 20, I, one day, I, was, I went to the University of California at Northridge, but at that time it was just a state college, 
and lasted for nine months before I got kicked out for gambling in the cafeteria. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, I wanted to be a civil engineer. I wasn't civil enough to do it. <laughs> no. I love numbers. I still like numbers and playing with numbers. Yeah. But uh, I was working for, by then I ended up doing bookkeeping and learning about programming computers before they were called computer programmers. Oh, wow. And I was, I was uh, working for Bob's Big Boy Hamburgers. Yeah, I don't know if, you remember, if they're still around. Oh, absolutely. I definitely okay. remember those. Yeah, well, this was in Pasadena, and I was a head office, and I was a translator, we were called at that time. Yeah, okay, yeah. Working between the computer department and the accounting department. And they wanted youngsters because we were more willing to figure out what computers were about. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, one day I said to the man at the desk next, next to me, I am so sick of dating the guys I'm dating. They are all too serious. I'm just not having, just not enjoying any of them very much. I think I'm going to buy a sailboat and learn how to sail. And I do not know from to this you know to this day I don't remember thinking about it, except that the guy at the desk next to me pointed across the room, and there on the far wall was a picture of a big schooner, hmm. a big photograph of a schooner, it, and he said, you know, the company owns that schooner. Why don't you call the skipper? He might be able to help you out. So, great idea. So I call the skipper and I say, hi, this is uh, Lynn Zatkin from head office. I'm the one they come in the economy department here at the head office. And I'm looking for a sailboat and I've got $200. Well, back then that was like maybe $2,400 or $2,500. Yeah. But, you know, I thought I was quite rich. Yeah. The time in my life I had any savings. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, we have a little boat. Uh, a little tender that we were thinking of selling. And uh, if you want to come down and have a look, it's a good boat to learn how to sail. Well, I just said, I'll be down there this evening. So I drove 120 miles or whatever distance it was. And uh, where do you knock on an 85 foot schooner when you've never been around boats before? <laughs> that it was, the schooner was behind a restaurant in Newport Beach. And I finally got brave and knocked on the bulwark and this Labrador retriever said, woof, and I almost fell off the other side of the dock. <laughs> but the skipper came out and said, you're the old hag from head office. And I said, well, I am the accountant from head office. <laughs> and he invited me on board. Long story short, he took me out for dinner. And on the way, we stopped for, by the way, the, the little tender was beautiful, a little varnished, good lab-strike tender. Oh, cool. But uh, he invited me out for dinner. On the way, we stopped at a bar where he had to give someone his car keys because someone was borrowing his car the next day. And Larry was playing pool with his friend Ken. And they walked over and said, and Larry, first words I ever heard from Larry were, hey, Bob, who's the chick? No. <laughs> who's the chick? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob said her name's Lynn. 
Memphis, Larry, Larry, that's his Ken. You guys are playing pool. See you later. But uh, I drove all the way back the next day to take a sailing lesson, and the schooner wasn't there. And where do you knock on an empty piece of water? <laughs> so I was standing there, and a car drove into the parking lot, literally right next to the dock. And um, Larry steps out of this MGTC, this prettiest little miniature car. Oh, cool. And he had a beautiful Canadian accent. And he said, oh, if you're looking for Bob Sloan, he's probably been called away on a charter or something. So why don't you come and have a cup of coffee with me? So we went up to have some coffee at the cafe right there and uh, started chatting. And by the time the coffee had been poured, along comes Bob Sloan. And he says to Larry, I thought I had a date with Liam. <laughs> and Larry looks at him and says, early bird gets the worm. <laughs> scooped. That's called getting scooped. <laughs> yeah, and Bob looked at both of us and didn't talk to either of us for two years. Oh, man. Very angry. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. But Larry probably didn't care, huh? <laughs> no, no. But uh, so then that, so Larry asked me if I might, he asked where I was going. I said, it's heading back to the San Fernando Valley. He said, would I mind dropping him in Marina del Rey? He had a boat to pick up. He had to move, move a boat from Marina del Rey down to Newport. So I did, and when we got there, he says, well, come for a boat ride. So he, I went offshore for my very first time out of Marina del Rey in a 54-foot uh, catch charter boat and sailed with Larry down the coast. Nice. And uh, three days later, I moved in with him. On the so, boat, or you guys have like a place? Well, I moved on to the boat. That was his boat he was charging. I moved on board the boat and stayed there for two days. And then I found yep. that he, he had already started building a little wooden boat. Right. He'd been looking Got for it. a boat to go cruising and uh, left Canada with money from, he had been racing, he'd been buying and restoring boats and then racing them and getting a good reputation and then selling them on. And he gathered enough money to, he felt, go off and find a good cruising boat. Uh, he had fifty. He had $5,000, which would be the equivalent of about sixty or 70000 nowadays. Yeah. But uh, he'd taken off and hitched a ride down to California, was looking around, not finding anything he liked. And then the same Bob Sloan was looking for crew to go to Hawaii. And long story, it's quite a funny story, but I won't waste the time on it. Uh, he, Larry ended up uh, setting off with him on the schooner as first mate and uh, they did a charter a two month charter doing filming for a television series called The Wackiest Ship in the Army oh wow and, uh, so that was and when they came back Bob Sloan said that a friend of his was looking for a skipper and Larry signed on as skipper of Little Revenge, which was at that time considered a large charter boat. It was 54 feet long, slept yeah. eight. But it was owned by the uh, man who owned the Bank of California at that time, New Bank of Newport at that time. And, uh, Larry said his real job was finding interesting cafes to go out to. 
with the owner. <laughs> but uh, Larry t- used to run down to Mexico with the boat and out to the islands and up to San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. And so, then you guys. Uh, so he, he didn't find the boat that he was going to buy. Right. And one day, Bob Sloan, same old Bob Sloan, had come in to the bar where Larry was playing pool and winning everybody's shirts off their backs and uh, said to Larry, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. Every dollar you spend here is gone. He says, start building yourself a boat. This is silly. Find a boat you want and just build the bloody thing because every dollar you put into it will be worth three when it's finished. Yeah. And he was, and that's what made Larry change direction and find a boat to go. Which is what he did with you, and as you mentioned earlier, you know mm-hmm. your recent passage across Bass Strait was on a boat designed not for somebody who's four ten or you know in the <laughs> boat you guys built together. It sounds like Seraphin is something that, as you mentioned in a lot of the stories I read, is mm-hmm. was tailor made, not tailor made, but like it, it fit you, it fit your er- the ergonomics of you, Lynn, and allowed you to be really successful, you know, sailing it as well. And that's a boat that was. We talk about seraphim because one of the neat things that I really kind of geek out on is small boats and big seas. And this is a 24 foot boat. You guys sailed across (laughs) the Atlantic. You did some incredible things in a 24 foot boat, two people together, you know, so just talk about seraphim and I mean, how long did you have her for uh, and where you took her around the world? Well, we, um, seraphim was, designed by a California designer to be exceptionally good in light winds. Mm-hmm. Although she looked like a very old-fashioned boat, she could fly in the California light winds. Uh, 24 feet long, but she had a 9-foot beam. Oh, wow. And was a 5-tonner. So she, she was a hefty boat, but she had a very big sail plan. We could put up uh, 1,600 square feet of sail with spinnaker and staysail wow. and so we could keep her moving in very light winds. But she was designed in, on the lines of an English pilot boat, which meant she could keep the sea very well. In heavy winds, she was able to keep moving to windward. Uh, but the ergonomics is kind of interesting. Uh, it wasn't just that she was small size that made her work for me. It's the fact that every piece of gear we put on, very actually had me sit and you pretend I was using it like a winch before we mounted it. He said, can you get full use of your whole body? He says, because it's easy for me to winch things in. He said, but you're much smaller and you're a woman and your power is all in your hips. Mine's all in my shoulders compared. We want to be sure this is positioned so you could get your hips behind it. Yeah, how cool. So, yeah, so like the winches on the mast were mounted much lower than people were used to. So I could pull up using my little hips and thigh muscles, which are quite strong. So it made it, so some people found it, some guys would say, oh, they're up here, I could be faster. Well, they were down there for me. Right. More than just the size. But the reason for the size was Larry, in choosing it, said, what can I afford? to build and get done built in a reasonable time. Right. The average home built boat back when we were all building out of timber took seven to 12 years. And Larry said, I don't have that kind of time. 
Wow. Yeah, that was the 35 to 40 foot boat that a lot of people were trying to build. So he chose this 24 footer. He figured the hours it would take because he was a woodworker. That's one of the things he's always very good at. Oh, cool. And he says, I can afford to put two a year and a half or two years into building a boat, but not more than that. So it was built to be affordable. And uh, it turned out it took us three years to build because we took six months off in the middle to so Larry could sail across the Sahara Desert. But that's <laughs> something different. Uh, but uh, the building of the boat was, the size was chosen for that. We did not intend to sail her around the world. We intended to take her to Mexico for three or four months. That was our dream, was to actually have more than two or three weeks off in our life at one time. Yeah. So, so when the boat was nearly finished, we had some money in the bank, $2,000 or $2,500 left. And we started looking at engines. Everything we looked at was going to cost us about that much money, which meant that if we put the engine in, we had no money to go, so we'd have to work for another year or two. Hmm. So our decision was a very cold economic decision, which was... We will not put an engine in right now. We'll go sailing for three or four months. If we enjoy it, we'll come back. We'll work for a year and put an engine in. And Larry had raced extensively in Canada, around the Gulf Islands, around Desolation Sound, Straits of Juan de Fuca, no engine, and had found it enjoyable. Uh, took extra work, took extra patients yeah they yeah. said we'll go down to mexico for three or four months they don't have the currents they don't have the islands it's a lot easier and then we'll come back so hmm. we set sail uh we didn't have much to sell he'd been living on charter boat i had nothing but my little pink rambler because i you know, flatting with friends so, <laughs> cool and when we built the boat we lived in the boat shop with the boat as we were building it to save money. So we headed off to Mexico after selling like Pink Rambler and his MGTC. And when we were there for about three months or four months, somebody asked us to deliver a boat back to the United States for them. And while we were there, we picked up, when we got to the States, we picked up an extra anchor and carried it back on the plane, but I don't remember. Uh, but <laughs> we came back and realized we had enough money to live for another five or six months. So we said, well, let's meander down to Acapulco. Maybe we can pick up a delivery job there. It took us three or four months to get down to Acapulco. We didn't, the boat we were supposed to deliver got lost on a reef. Yeah, but uh, somebody asked us to put a new, to do some woodwork on their boat. And that's how it went. Larry's <laughs> cut a hole in their deck and put a new hatch in their deck. And I did the finish work because I'd learned to varnish quite well by then. And yeah. We had enough money for another few months. And right. uh, we came home 11 years later the, you know, by, and we went east around the world. Wow. Amazing adventures. Oh, I can only imagine we could probably talk for days about the adventures. But one thing too, that I really like to kind of rewind a little bit is actually your blog is really cool. And one of the, it is. And I read, I read your post from, I believe 
Oh, geez, I can't, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it was, you're about to take off um, with your current selling partner. And you were, you were kind of just talking about how challenging it is to put everything aside. And basically, like you said, I think not to I'll probably misquote you, but to like cast off your lines and just go. And you mentioned, you talked yeah. to somebody at the Annapolis boat show who said, we have our boat, we're ready to go. But, and it's just like this moment of like, going, you know, and, and getting out there. And like, and, and I can see it now trace back all the way back to your guys' day when you're like, you had this decision, I'm guessing you sat down, you're like, Hey, we can keep working buy the motor, delay our trip, which is just one more ex- not excuse. I shouldn't say that, but it's one more reason to delay what you really want to do. And there will always be something, you know, in your life that will delay if you let it, what you want to do. And, and, mm-hmm. What's cool too, and, and I just got this book, the um, the wisdom of insecurity that you mentioned in your blog post by yeah. Alan Watts, and I just started reading it because I, I I can that's so much me with my life, all these different things I want to do, but I'm always bound by something or I think I am, who knows what. But it's just a cool read for folks listening, but also for you, Lynn. Like I appreciate you sharing that wisdom because it feels like a big part of the success and the amazing life you've had is because you've been willing to just like you said cast off the lines and just go for it. And there you guys were. And then 11 years later, you, you know, and then you, you kept going from there. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned the things that keep you from going. We had a huge decision when not just the engine decision, but what had happened while we were building the boat is uh, long story, but I'll make, I won't tell the background. We ended up representing a sale making company from England. And we started this little Chandlerian sale business and it grew mm-hmm. and it helped, really helped us finish the boat. Yeah, that's how we got our sales and paid for a lot of things, but it kept growing on us. Yeah. And I sat down and I'm the numbers person and Larry was very careful, comfortable letting me just take care of the finances. And I said, Larry, we've got a problem here. Right now we have this money in the bank. By the time the boat's finished and launched and we do some sea trials, we'll have this about $25,000 in the bank. But if we stay for a year, we've been offered these three big contracts to make, you know, get, provide the sales for one company was called McGregor Marine, which went on to make a huge number of boats. And the Balboa Boat Company, I said, if we stay around, for just another year and a half, we could have forty or fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Well, that's mm. like, yeah, half a million dollars. Yeah. Money. And we sat and mulled that over for several days, and just sat down and made lists of pros and cons. And then all of a sudden, we both looked at each other and said, "But what if the contracts fall through? What if the economy changes? We're selling, you know." We're young. We can come back and do that sort of thing in yeah. six months. We don't have to do it right now. And uh, we said, we're going. If we if we don't go now, there'll be some other reason. Yeah, that's great. And that's like, and such was, a great left. It was very, uh, it was the best decision we ever made. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. You know, and, 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 since, you know, and I, I'm quoting this off of some bunch of stuff I've read about you and you're, you're really fun to like Google up like Lynn party, like, cause there's these two cool parts of you. One is all the different 
amazing stories and blogs and all kinds of stuff people have written about you. But then your other side of, the, <laughs> of your story is your own writing, you know, and you're, you're like stealing a resume. It's like incredible. Like, you, like you've logged over 200,000 nautical miles. As we mentioned, two circumnavigations, both east to west and west to east mostly on boats under 30 feet, which I can completely trip out on just being in big seas on small boats. It's so cool. Rounded Cape Horn. So deep experience in the sailing part, but at some point there, you like the numbers person, as you mentioned, you also started writing. And so tell us where did that come, come out of of all of during this time, like you're writing. Well, what's funny is I never liked writing. I love reading. I've always loved reading. I never was anything about writing. Ask my teachers in English and composition. Uh, but uh, when we were first off cruising, I just had this great urge to write really long letters to my mother, uh, who I wasn't very good friends with. And I think I was bragging. <laughs> you might have thought I was destined for... Uh, prostitution and who knows what else, you know, horror. <laughs> and look, I'm out here having a good old time. But no, it, it was very funny. But I, I just found myself writing 10-page letters about what we were doing because it was interesting. But I did, that didn't twig it to me or anything, but I now realize it was practice. But two and a half years, into, or two years, into our cruise, we happened to sail into the Panama Canal to, on our way into the Caribbean and had a really great job there for a month and a half picking re-rigging a boat and then it was time to go through the canal and the day that we were the day before we were supposed to leave and go through the canal it started to pour with rain and not the day it must have been three or four weeks before get my timing right all i know is one day it was absolutely pouring with rain we couldn't do anything so we went in and we were sitting at the yacht club and i picked up a magazine that someone had obviously left behind called Boating Magazine and started reading an article called The Perfect Yacht and it was written by a man named Arthur Weiser and he was talking about the new yacht he just had commissioned 57 foot long minutes light and telling how perfect it was for cruising and then he had a sentence in there that said a few Spartan souls have been known to go cruising in boats as small as 30 feet. Hmm. And I got furious because <laughs> not only we just been up for two years in our 20 foot, 24 footer, but there wasn't one boat over 36 feet long of the 14 boats that were at the, was it 11 or 14 boats that were at the Panama Canal? Yeah. With a bumper year that degree we're talking back in 1970. There was a 17-footer that had just arrived from England. Oh, jeez. Three or four 28-footers. The average size of the 11 boats was 28 foot 9 inches long. Wow. And this man is telling everybody, you got to be rich enough to have a 57-footer. I mean, that's multimillionaire stuff. Right. And I, I, so I wrote a very nasty letter, very strongly worded letter <laughs> to the editor. And I guess it was three weeks later. We were just getting ready to, the pilot was coming on board to take us, you know, to guide us through the Panama Canal. And out comes the club launch and a man waving a telegram. 
And, you know, in those days, a telegram meant that somebody died. So I was, we were quite concerned. And we opened it up right. and the telegram says just two words, prove it. By <laughs> Monk. And Monk was his signature name. And it took us a couple of weeks to figure out who that was and what it was all about because we didn't know anyone in New York. I was from New York. And we realized it was the editor that I'd written to. And all he'd said was, prove it. <laughs> cool. So Larry and I talked about it for quite a long time as we were sailing through the Caribbean. And we started interviewing anybody on yachts that we met along the way and writing letters to friends who we've met from Crete who have been up cruising for a couple of years. And we put together something called the Cruiser Survey, which was based on 50 interviews or uh, letters from friends who'd been sailing for at least two years and what the average size boat was, et cetera, et cetera. And by gosh, that article sold instantly. And we were invited to New York to meet with the editor who spent three days coaching us on what kind of stories people wanted to read. Oh, cool. He was fascinated by what we were doing. And he said, start just write about what you've done. So it just took off. I never had an article rejected. I never had a lesson about writing, but I had something that I wanted desperately to share with people, which was it didn't have to be rich. You didn't have to wait until you were retired. Yeah. Get out there. And that sailing was available for anyone who was just willing to get a little wet and dirty and split a toenail or fingernail. Yeah. How cool. Yeah. And then there was your. Very lucky. Yeah, oh, awesome. And that was like your, again, your previously, you're kind of going from place to place and then making some money, going to the next place, making a little more money. Here was this great opportunity now to sort of make career, like make money while you're sailing, while you're traveling, while you're doing this cool stuff. And so my question is then, because writing, there's a sense of flow when you kind of get lost in your writing, you know, you kind of just wake up you're like, Whoa, that was 30 minutes. I didn't even realize it was 30 minutes for like two, you know, there's like the sense of flow. There's a sense of flow of being in the water too, whether you're sailing, whether you're steering or just being out there. I mean, so talk about that. I mean, for you, is there like a sense of flow Do those two things? Is there like some kind of overlap there of being in the water, that sense of flow? And it's also your writing. Um, let's just say that, when I finally get a story going, yes, it just flows beautifully. Right. But the nice thing about combining the sailing and the writing is the sailing not only gives you time to think, time to just mull over ideas. Yeah. It gives you time to open your eyes and look around you. And then when you get to shore, you meet people and people have so many questions that it end up saying, oh my God, when am I going to write enough to answer all these questions people are asking me? So it all flows together beautifully. But the thing, the writing didn't just kick in and start paying for our cruising. It took yeah. seven years hmm. before we felt that we didn't. At seven years, and by then I think three, four books before we could say, okay, we only have to deliver one boat a year. And uh, so 
And it wasn't until you know, maybe 10 years down the line when we just said, okay, maybe you can just go and do some seminars and why those instead of delivering books. So, uh, you know, it wasn't an instant go. It was a wonderful addition. I remember yeah. when I felt that I had made it was the first time I could afford, because of my writing, to pay somebody else to scrub the empty filing and sand it. Oh, that's awesome. That must have been like a, <laughs> you guys must have thrown a party to celebrate that day. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we cruised for the first, on Saturday, we never spent more than $3,000 in a year cruising. Oh, that's incredible. So, so even if you put all the inflation, we're talking eight or 9000 a year. That's so cool. So cool. But we fixed everything <laughs> on that boat ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And Tavison, the same, of course, we fixed everything uh, on board her. So uh, that kept our costs in control. Tavison was 30 feet long and one of the most luxurious boats you could ever have. Wow, wow. So now, fast forwarding to today, um, the, the, the trip you're on today, now will you be back? on board to help um, complete the circumnavigation for your selling partner? Okay, let's go back into that. Uh, your times have changed just a little bit there in a nice way. Uh, you're reporting from what David and I met two and a half years ago, three mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, Larry uh, developed Parkinson's and Parkinsonian dementia about 10 years ago. And I yeah. was we were able to sail together even through the first parts of that. Hmm. But uh, when he had to go into full-time care about a year later, I met David who sailed in to visit because he read a couple of my books and heard I was living in this little island home that Larry built for us in New Zealand. And at that time, yes, David was trying to finish a 10-year circumnavigation and uh, invited me just for fun to sail down to Fjordland, the south of New Zealand with him. And we ended up sailing around New Zealand together. And I said, this is somebody I really enjoy sailing with and I enjoy being with. Cool. And he is also very comfortable with the fact that I now have both a husband and a boyfriend. Yeah. He's very good about the fact that I still have to go back and care for Larry. Oh, that's cool. Occasion. Uh, but uh, he's an Australian sailor uh, with a background in the legal profession. He was a uh, university lecturer on law and world heritage law and environmental law. He started the School of Environmental Law in uh, the University in Townsville, James Cook University. So very interesting person and extremely different and different background. But uh, we set sail together and we've now been sailing together as partners for two years. Cool. That's included sailing, finishing the circumnavigation, which was going up from New Zealand up through Fiji and on to uh, Townsville where he had started out and arriving back to a wonderful reception. All of his daughters had flown in from various places and his friends. And then we sailed onward 
along the coast of Australia and down to Tasmania because I was a special guest at the Hobart Wooden Boat Festival. Oh, cool. So they said, well, let's go there. And of course, I had so many wonderful friends in the wooden boat field that uh, it's more like a reunion uh, festival for me. Oh, that's so awesome. we're, we've done some great sailing together. But uh, another sea story the worst sailing accidents I've had in my whole life happened yeah. during the first few weeks of our voyage from New Zealand on to the to Australia. Oh, geez, what Just happened? Uh, and once again, the first incident was due to me being on a new boat and being careless hmm. or being too cocky, shall we say. Um, when we left New Zealand, uh, David's boat, Sahula, is a Van de Stet 36-footer that actually, with Van de Stet, uh, full design input, they lengthened the boat to 40 feet by putting an extra lazarette on it, which really, mm. I think, makes it look even better. Uh, much more towards a motor sailor than a pure sailing machine, like Tatwasen and Seraphim were, in that uh, she is not designed for light wind sailing. But a wonderful boat for what David enjoyed doing in particular, which was not only circumnavigating as a single-hander, but also going up through all the canals of Europe. Oh, up cool. Danube, right through the Black Sea and through Danube and up through the mountains of uh, Austria and really unusual places. But um, she's a good sailing boat, but not a light wind boat. So it's very different, but she's also a bigger boat than I'm used to. Um, so that that you know, that's she's shoulder draft. She's uh, just one point five meters draft. Right. Yeah. Which lets her do the canal as well. But uh, we went sailing together. We left New Zealand, left on run fresh winds, uh, about 20, 25 knots running. All's going well. I went down below to climb into the bunk, didn't turn any cabin lights on because didn't want to interfere with night vision up in the cockpit. Heard a dish rattling in the galley and went into the galley and decided to just sort the dishes up, you know, sort put some sponges in among. I always carry a bag of sponges with me to shut rattling things up. Oh, good call. So I was busy stuffing a sponge between some plates and the boat took a sea a little bit different, lurched pretty badly, and I grabbed for a handhold, and it wasn't there. I was actually reacting to having been on Taliesin for 23 years. Oh, wow. So I practiced flying in an enclosed space and uh, came off the worst for it. I broke the helm of the uh, seat on the uh, chart table area, split my hand open oh. and felt I bruised myself pretty badly, but turned out I broke five ribs and had eight fractures. Oh, jeez. I didn't know it at the time. Once we got the blood off my hand under control and I was able to maneuver into a bunk, I said, David, just let me rest until morning. Keep going. I'll be fine. I've just torn a muscle or something. Well, long story short, after four days, I was able to come and stand and watch. No, after three days, 
We oh, hoped to a couple of times to get David rest. And we went on to Fiji. By the time we got to Fiji, I was still very sore, but I could move around okay. Couldn't lift one arm, but didn't think anything of it. But David said, we're going ashore. We're having, getting a good hot shower. We're having a nice meal out. And then I'm taking you to a doctor. <laughs> yeah. I want to know what's wrong. Cause you're still, you know, just to make sure I said, there's nothing wrong with me. I just got a torn muscle. Well, it started to rain. It started to howl with wind outside the yacht club. We were at the Suva yacht club. Saw a whole bunch of people running across the lawn, went out to see a super yacht, 150 footer drag right across the harbor, was laying over on its side on the shallows. Oh, wow. David said, Lynn, I got to go back out to the boat. We got to go back out to the boat. And he said, You're going to get soaking wet. I didn't have, I hadn't brought any rain gear in. David's always prepared. His backpack always has a wet jacket in it. I said that I'll come too, because you're not going to come back for me in this weather. Long story short, we went out. The boat wasn't where it had been left. Oh, jeez. We're out in a eight-foot dinghy in four-foot, three to four-foot swell or seas going through because it was blowing about fifty to sixty. Five horsepower upward, or no, eight horsepower or eight horsepower upward, but. We were able to maneuver past the ship that was laying between us and where we thought the boat was. And there, just beyond the ship, we saw the masthead light, which is quite distinctive. And she's aground. Oh, man. She's walking pretty hard. So we get out to her, and she's laying over at quite an angle. Uh, and we get on board. And I, don't, I still don't remember climbing on board. It's, you know. Broken ribs and all, I just don't remember any of that. I just remember I got on board. We started checking the boat over. There was, the anchor was gone. The chain was gone. There was chips of paint everywhere. Uh, blue, Sahula is bright red. I went down below and put out a pan call at David's request. Yeah. Uh, to the harbor, you know, the harbor department. And the interior of the boat, there was just locker doors had all been smashed open. But someone came back and said, when you finish with the harbor master, we'll tell you what happened. We're in trouble too. Turns out a 200 foot long freighter had broken its mooring oh. and come down and smashed into Sahula, bow on, was dragging her then, you know, then crashed into her side and was dragging her down through the anchorage and the anchor chain Thank God, pulled loose the two snubbing lines broke right. on the anchor chain. Wow. Which is, you know, that's why you never have your anchor chain bolted to the inside of your boat. You have it right. on some kind of snubber line, so they'll break. Or you can cut them in as if. She then got shoved into and five other yachts who all got tangled up. And oh. then the ship ran aground. And long story short. We just handled it. Uh, the harbor master tried to send a vessel down to help us. We were too shallow of water. But the tide was coming in, and we had just enough. She rocked just enough that on each rock we were able to move her back a few feet. Wow. By making sure there were no lines in the water. Drama, drama, drama. 
long story short, we got her back out in deep water, had spare anchors, spare anchor roads, got her anchored for the night. And in the morning, got into the little marina area to, and were able to assess the damage. It had smashed the bow puppet, the stern puppet, broken the bulwark. Oh. But, uh, and several dishes, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> David went ashore to meet with the commodore from the yacht club who helped set up a meeting with the port officials and the ship owner. And the other five yachts that were damaged, the, the crew from the other five yachts. And um, to make a long story short, all of our expenses for the repair work was paid for by the ship and within and we, we were able to get local craftsmen to do all the stainless work beautifully. Wow. So, you know, it came out pretty good. But meanwhile, while Larry's, well, Larry, while David is having this meeting with the harbor master, I drove up, took a taxi up to the local emergency hospital to find out that I had. Oh, yeah. Broken five, ribs. Broken ribs, eight fractures, and thirsty. <laughs> and had, had, now the good thing is, had I gone to a hospital immediate within a few hours of when I had the injury, I would have a metal plate up my back. Oh, wow. But the doctor said, you know, since it's healed, he says it's healed well enough that I guess you'll just have to have a little ridge on your back instead. He says, so I'm so glad I didn't have help in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh wow! What a crazy like few days for you guys. You know? Oh, I can't couldn't believe it. What a story! <laughs> but I'll say that uh, what was interesting in all of it was it, working with David in each of the situations. Yeah, made me feel very glad that I once again was with the man who really accepted my input and respected, uh, was listening to anything I suggested and. We worked things through, and nobody's. And one of the biggest lessons that Larry taught me right from the beginning is that my job as a partner and his job as a partner was to make the other guy look as good as you could. Hmm. And I was watched the other guy's rear end. Yeah, that's very cool. And that's, that's very what cool. Good, to be, you know, to have a successful crew and work together, it's just you build something wonderful. Yeah. And indeed, that's very cool. And that's, that's like a, that's an analogy for life in general with a partner just on land or sea, you know, just dealing with bills and kids and mortgages and all the things that normal mm -hmm. life throws at you, we let alone dealing with an injury at sea or big seas or anything crazy. I mean, I think that's, that's great. I think that's very yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you know, the other thing is that emergency medical kit that you carry around and say, I got a waste of time space. No, no, that'll be a day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I'm 100% with the bases. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Be, be, be prepared. Well, Lynn, I really enjoy all listening to all this, and I would love to. I mean, there's so many 50 years of sailing stories, and you touched on a few, which I really appreciate. And just, I love the perspective you share uh, from the, you know, that you gave us today from the start, way back in the day. 50 years back to today and the, just the cool things you're doing. So I really want to thank you for taking your time. And I know it's New Year's Eve is a few, few hours away for you. So I know you got some fun stuff lined up and just want to say thank you again for being here with us today. Okay. Thank you. And tell people my name is spelled L I N 
if they're trying to find me. <laughs> you got it. And hey, also uh, on the web, where where should folks go? I'll put some links in the in the show notes and everything. But where can people go to to learn more and read your blog and see find some of your books? Uh, the easiest place is uh, uh, Party Time. That's spelled yep. P A R D E Y Time. Dot blogspot dot com. Cool. Or I have a Facebook page that I try to post something fun or interesting every two or three days, and it's just under L I N P A R D E Y then party. Nice. Nice. And then that's also a good old fashioned Google search of Lynn Party. You get your books you have uh, and all your blog and a lot of neat articles and interviews you've done with other folks. There's a lot of wealth of just neat stories that are out there floating around. And here's another sort of chapter here with me on the podcast. So uh, again, Lynn, thank you so much for all and, you've and done. I, sorry, go sorry. ahead. If, you, if they're interested in reading and being encouraged. I, I really am pleased with the self-sufficient sailor that just came out. Oh, cool. It's the third edition. Uh, it talks about, uh, it, it introduces David into my life, but it also talks about the fact that you don't even, you don't need crew to get out there. It's so easy to find crew and people to sail with. Yep. There's a whole, a whole section on that. That's kind of, I, I think uh, it's a book that will encourage some of your listeners. Very cool. Thank you. And I'll put a show note to that too. So folks listening, just go do it. Cast your lines off. And like we were talking about, you know, uh, try to figure out how to not let the things that we let get in our way from, you know, getting our way of going out and having some fun. And so Lynn, thank you for inspirational. Keep doing what you're doing and uh, happy new year and best of luck to you in 2020. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Great. Okay. Take care. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening uh, to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. And uh, so thrilled to have you here supporting uh, myself and the podcast and all the guests uh, continually. Always appreciate a positive um, rating on your, uh, your podcast app, whether it be you know Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Just helps, helps grow the podcast and uh, spread awareness. So thanks for that. And then any uh, social media mentions, always super appreciative. And uh, if you know somebody who you think would be great to have on the podcast to share about their ocean life, please hit me up. I'd love to chat with them. Or if you think you'd like to, let me know. Uh, Email is josh at thisoceanlife.tv. All right. Thanks, guys.